sure he could read me McDonald's menu, and I'd be like, that is awesome. So, <laughs> um, well, if you have your Bibles, turn over to Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to be looking in Ephesians chapter 5. I realize I need a cup holder. I'm going to have to, right there. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 5. You know, over the last, uh, actually several months now, as we've been going through Ephesians together, um, we've heard this word walk over and over again. As we confess together, you heard the, the word walk and how, how Paul writes in Ephesians about how we are to walk, and that, and that is how we are to live our lives. Uh, again, you know, remind us, why use the word walk? Well, back in those days, that's what you did, right? Um, nowadays, we tend to use the word driven, right? Something drives our life, or it, it, we would use more of that metaphor because we drive everywhere. But uh, if you live in a society where you walk, walk becomes a very powerful metaphor of how you were to live your life because it, it speaks to basically every moment. And just, just going back through, hear the words again of how Paul writes in Ephesians about walking. In, in Ephesians 2, 1 and 2, it says, and, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And then notice how he defines it, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That is, Paul uses the word walk to describe the way in which we used to live our lives, right? That's why we can see almost immediately in Ephesians, this, this metaphor of walking is about how we live our lives. He goes on in Ephesians 2.10 which is right after the great verses where he says, for by grace you have been saved. In Ephesians 2.10 it says, for we are his workmanship. Right? God created us. He, he formed us. He made us this way. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. And why did he do that? That we should walk in them. That our lives should be lived carrying out these good works. And then Ephesians 4.1, Paul writes again about walking. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So our walk in the, in the Christian life is about a calling. Right? It's about, about what we have been called to do. And Paul says walk in a worthy manner according to that calling. And, and then in Ephesians 4, 17, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Writing to the Ephesians who lived in a, in a highly Gentile world in Asia Minor, modern day Turkey, he says you, you can't walk in the way you used to. Remember, I, I called that you were walking in the futility of your minds. You can't walk that way as the Gentiles do. What? You... you when you walk in the futility of your mind, you're walking in the old way. So, so don't do that. Walk no longer in that way. Walk differently. Live your lives differently. And he, he goes on in 5.2, after telling us in 5.1 to be imitators of God, and he says, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So you're to walk in love, which is a sacrificial thing. 
right? It's not a self-exalting thing. It's a sacrificial thing. And then he goes on in, in verse 8, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk how? As children of light. Walk according to your new nature of, of who you are in Christ. And this morning we're going to turn to this last occurrence of walk where it says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. We're going to give attention this morning to that walking. And what we're going to see is in the, the last section here in Ephesians, largely is we we're carried into this by this, this whole idea of the walk carefully. Now, if you have your bulletins, you'll notice, and I, I put it in the slide, I actually originally called this walking wisely, but I went back and looked at the text more and said, no, really what Paul is saying is walk carefully, right, together in the body of Christ. And this morning, we're going to look at how we walk carefully. How do we walk carefully together in the body of Christ? And we're going to see that, that Paul uses three contrasts, the third of which we will get into more even next week. But those three contrasts, if you're looking there in, in Ephesians 5.15, you'll see the first one, not as wise, but, or excuse me, not, not as wise, yeah, walk, walk as a fool, no, that's not what he says, not as unwise, but as wise, right, that's your first one. The second one is not foolishly, but understanding what the will of the Lord is in verse 17, and then the third is not drunk, but filled with the Spirit there in verse 18. That is, we are to walk in wisdom, right? Walk is wise. We are to walk in the will of the Lord. That is, not foolishly, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. And we are to walk filled by the Holy Spirit. Not drunk, but filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to dive in, and I want to basically advance the argument this morning that to walk carefully is to do these three major things in our lives to do these three things, to walk in wisdom, to walk in the will of the Lord, and to walk filled by the Holy Spirit. Now, if you look there in verse 15, as it starts, look carefully then how you walk. Well, let's talk a little bit about the word carefully. What, what is that saying? Well, one is you can see the word then right next to it, right? He, what Paul has done is he's using a, a logical connector. Okay, I just told you you were children not of darkness. You are now children of light. You are light. That has implication, further implications on how your life is to be walked and led. So what that means is now as children of light, you need to walk carefully. Now, carefully could make you feel like you've got to walk on eggshells. Anyone like doing that all the time? You ever been in that relationship or you had those bad moments maybe in your marriages where you know now is the time to walk carefully. Yeah, you're, you're laughing a little bit because, yeah, you know what this is like, right? Um, the door, you, you want to be careful. Don't, don't, don't even close the door too hard because that may not come across the right way, right? Be careful of the adverbs you choose because choose the wrong modifier and that turns into a, a further argument. How many of you like walking on eggshells? right? That is not what Paul is getting at here. He is not asking us to live our life in Christ, 
to walk carefully together that we're walking on eggshells. We should not be walking thinking God is looking for the opportunity to bring down the other shoe, right? God's not just sitting there waiting. I'm just waiting for him to mess up and I'm going to get him. That is not what Paul is saying. What's helpful here is to see a couple of instances where this word carefully is used in the New Testament. One is in Matthew 2.8. It's the story of, of Herod when he tells the wise men, I want you to go, go look and go find this Jesus that you brought. Now obviously he's doing it for very, very evil or nefarious purposes. He's not trying to worship him, even though that's what he claims. He actually wants to kill Christ. In Matthew 2.8, it says, And Herod sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search, and there's the word, search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. This is one of those places I'd love they put in the New Testament, that I too will come and worship him. That is not what Herod was going to do. But notice what he did. He, he's telling them, I want you to go be diligent about it, right? Not fearfully. It, it would make sense there. I want you to look very intentionally and diligently to find this, this child that you told me has come. Now, the other place, another place you see it is in the very beginning of Luke. In Luke chapter 1, verse 3, Luke writing the, the, the gospel of Luke and ultimately write Acts basically for the same reason, writes to Theophilus and says, I write for a distinct purpose. And he said, it seemed good to me, that is Luke, it seemed good to me also having followed all things closely. You see how the word fearfully doesn't fit there? That's the word again. Following them closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. See, the word that gets translated here in Ephesians 5.15 is carefully, is this idea of diligence, of carefulness, of, of closeness, of attention to detail. It's not for fearful reasons. It's because you, we want to make sure that we, we catch the opportunities that are in front of us, that we don't miss the important things. And so Paul is telling us that to walk carefully is not to walk in fear, but to give diligent attention to our lives. To give diligent attention to our lives. Now, let's be clear, if we're walking in open sin, rebelling against God, there's a reason to be fearful that God will bring about discipline. But that's not really Paul's purpose here. Paul's purpose is to say, how are we to live together so that others would see the seriousness we have about living, walking in our lives for Christ. He says, we'll, we'll give diligent attention to that. So what does it look like then to give careful, diligent attention to how we walk in the body of Christ? That's really what these three points answer. Okay, I'm going to give a careful, diligent attention to walking together in the body of Christ, to living out our lives together and, in, and individually for, for Christ. What does that look like? Well, this is where Paul then launches into these three contrasts. The first one there you see in the second part of verse 15, we are to walk how? Not as unwise, but as wise. Right? That's the first point. Walk in wisdom. We might simply put it, walk wisely. 
walk in wisdom. Now, what is wisdom? For those, now it's been several years ago when I preached through the first half of Proverbs, we, we dealt a lot on this idea of wisdom. But the writer of Proverbs, Solomon primarily as he brought these together, writes in, in Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. And gives us just a summary introduction of what wisdom is. He says in Proverbs 1, 1 through 7, The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to re receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. To give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning. And the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. You see how Solomon, if you really just encapsulate, he's saying, if you're looking at this, what biblical wisdom is, is the understanding of how to understand the word of God and then apply it in our lives. At a very basic level, it tells us how to walk, how to live our lives. You see, to walk in biblical wisdom is not only to know how to live in a fallen world, but notice the last phrase, the fear of the Lord, but who to live for in a fallen world. Now, I want you to stop and think about this. If you read the book of Proverbs and you pull out the fear of the Lord, let's just think about that for a second. You read the Bible and pull out the fact that it is God who ultimately reigns and who we are accountable to. You realize there's a lot of wisdom even when you remove God from the equation? Read Proverbs. You know, there's a lot of people in our world that we entirely satisfied with following the wisdom of Proverbs and just yanking out the fear of the Lord, not worrying about that. Because it gives solid, sound advice on how to live in a fallen world. Do you know why? The creator of the world understands how the brokenness of the world needs to be fixed and addressed. But you see, biblical wisdom doesn't just know how to live. It knows who to live for. And so this is why in Proverbs it says, if you're talking about wisdom, you can't just know how to do things so that you can live in a fallen world. You actually need to fear the Lord to understand, live for him. Because that will begin to explain how you apply this wisdom. It will help you understand how to walk, how to live it out. Now, Paul gets a little more specific, but what does it look like to live as a wise person, to walk in wisdom? Well, that, that phrase in verse 16, you make the best use of the time. You make the best use of the time. Now, I know how to stress out my wife. I tell her what deadline it is that I have to meet, and then she panics because I work well under pressure. That means I know how to procrastinate. <laughs> I, I, I have, I actually, I always tell people I have two master's degrees. Actually, I have three. My third one's in procrastination. I just haven't gotten to it yet, right? 
making the best use of time would say, no, maybe you should do a little more work ahead of time, right? By the way, one of my five children has inherited this great gift. And he doesn't tell his mother when his deadlines are either, right? But the making the best use of the time is looking at the time that you have at hand and how do you use it so that you can redeem it. Now, interestingly, this little phrase is actually used in the Old Testament. The Greek Septuagint, which is the translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, which was written a couple hundred years or so before the time of Christ, there's the great story of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 1 through 9. There's the story when Nebuchadnezzar has a dream and he needs it interpreted. It says in Daniel, Daniel 2 uh, verse 1, it says, In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king of, in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretations. And the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb. And your houses shall be laid in ruins. <laughs> and don't you love that? I'm not just going to kill you. I'm going to kill your family. That's what he says. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. It's not in there, but I think there's a little word missing in it. Gulp. They answered a second time and said, let the king tell his servants the dream. We weren't quite paying attention. Would you tell us a second time, please? We'd like to know the dream. And, it's, and, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that, and there's the little phrase that we have in Ephesians, you are trying to gain time. How do we say it? You're trying to buy time. Because you see that the word for me is firm, and if you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. And they knew they were in trouble. So what do you do? Stall. Find a way to save your neck. we got to figure this out because we and our families will die. The, the point in Daniel is that what you see in the use of this phrase is it is trying to redeem the time, in this case, to save their own necks. What's interesting is that that idea of buying time, it actually comes through when it's used in the New Testament. The, the idea that we use the metaphor, buy time, right? Um, have you ever been on projects? If you're doing a major project, right? Sometimes you do what when you, when you need to get something done? You throw more money at it, Right? Well, if I, if, I don't have, if I can't get it done, maybe if I throw more money at it, I can buy some time. Maybe I can buy the resources. I'm going to throw. That actual idea comes through of buying something when we see this phrase in the New Testament. In Galatians 3.13, it's actually the same word used, and it gets translated redeemed. 
It's like buying out of a slave market. It says in Galatians 3.13 that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. That's the same verb. It's buying time. Or in Ephesians it says, hey, make the most of the time. The literal translation would be redeem the time. Or in Galatians 4, 4, and 5, it says, but, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons to redeem those who were under the law. Do you hear that? To redeem them. That's the buying back. And, and Paul uses that same idea to say to live wisely is to redeem the time. Find ways to use it effectively. Redeem the time. See, walking in wisdom means we redeem each opportunity to advance the kingdom of God. What you're looking for is where is the opportunity? And that's the word time. The actual word in Greek is, is kairos. It, it means seasons or opportunity. And it's really important when you kind of get the idea of it. Sometimes it can just be an opportunity in the moment, Right? So if I laid a $20 bill down, I'm not because I don't have any cash, I don't carry cash, and if I did, I wouldn't do it. But if I did, and I laid it down there, and I said, whoever wants it, come get it, right? By the way, when I was a little kid, an evangelist did this with a $1 bill. And I looked, and I thought, "Uh uh-uh, you're not pulling me into that. And one of the other kids just walked up, grabbed and walked back, and I thought, ooh, I missed an opportunity, Right? So it can't be an opportunity like that. It just presents itself. That's part of the idea. But, but don't miss this as well. Sometimes the opportunity is a season. Parents know this, right? You have an opportunity, a season in your children's life to invest at certain times. And I, there's probably not a parent among us. We always look back and we say something like, man, I wish I would have. And then we fill in the blank, Right? I wish I would have, and I also have the I wish I wouldn't have, (laughs) but we realize that there was a season of life that we can't go back and get again. But we see this, I mean, some of you look back, I mean, you know, one of my, one of the great pieces of wisdom my dad gave me when I was young, he's like, son, if you want to get a degree, do it before you get married and have kids. And he was speaking from, from his own experience because he got married and had kids, and my, my dad just never was able to finish a degree because of it. I mean, I'm grateful because I had a roof over my head and, you know, three squares a day. Okay, eight squares a day. I ate like a teenager, but, you know. But the reality is, is that we know there are seasons of life. And, and one of the things that you want to do if you're going to live carefully, intentionally, diligently, is you want to look to live wisely and say, This season of life, what is it that can be redeemed to be used to advance the kingdom of God? Where has God put me? In what situation has he he put me into that I can redeem that to live wisely for the kingdom of God? And some of you are doing that. You're you're able to invest in grandchildren right now. That's great. I mean, one of the great blessings of our our children's lives is that our, our parents, both sides, invested heavily into our children. And, and that's been a real blessing for us. And for others of you, it's friendships you're in. And you're going to be able to invest in a friendship that you have now. 
And you need, now's the time to invest in it, right? For some of you, the investment is preparation. All right, part of the season of my own life was preparing for ministry, and, it, and part of that was going to seminary and doing that investment. And sometimes the preparation is the investment in the kingdom of God at the time. And so what Paul says is you need to develop wisdom so that you can see where you need to make the best use of that time to redeem it for the kingdom of God. And then notice why he says it, because why. Look at that. The days are evil. The days are evil. Look, the reason why we as the body of Christ, as the followers of Christ, have to look for opportunities to redeem the time, to advance the kingdom of God, because by default, if you don't, the default path of the world around you is a path of evil. This is the path. Why? Because we live in a fallen world that needs redemption. We live in a fallen world that needs redemption. So you have to look at opportunities to redeem the time to bring about the redemptive gospel upon those situations. Because the default path, and we know this by the very testimony of Scripture, if there is no intervention, where does mankind end up? All of us under the wrath of God. If our Lord, I'm mean, go back to Galatians, did not redeem us, the path we are on is the one of destruction. And so what we are looking for is, God, show me the opportunities to be used by you so that we can redeem this time wisely to advance the kingdom of God. Because the days are evil. Paul uses this phrase, and, and we won't go through in detail, but if you look at this, Paul's not just talking about those days. It's this idea that the days in which we currently live and continue to live are evil. They just continue to advance that way. And so until Christ comes back the second time, guess what the days are going to be? The days are going to be evil. That's the way the world works. It's fallen. It's broken. It's full of sin. And so we are looking for opportunities to redeem it for the kingdom of God. The second point, if we're going to walk carefully together, what we also need to do is not just, first of all, walk in wisdom. We need to walk, secondly, in the will of God. You'll see that in verse 17. He starts with, therefore, do not be foolish, right? He builds off the idea. I just told you, be wise, not unwise. Don't walk as a fool. Now, now here's one of the major points that Paul's trying to point out. You know who the greatest fool is? The greatest fool is the Christian who walks according to the wisdom of this world. The greatest fool is the Christian who walks according to the wisdom of this world. Now, now, here's the deal. You can walk according to the wisdom of this world and find success. Let me be very clear. Part of the struggle when you look at books like Ecclesiastes and other lament places, particularly in the Old Testament, why do the sinful, the unbelievers, why do they prosper? Because there are ways to prosper in this world by following the ways of this world. Because, you know, sometimes people do get away with it. They get away with sin. They do. But what Paul is pointing out to us is, don't be foolish. Because the greatest fool is the Christian who walks according to the ways of this world. And we think that will give me flourishing and success. Don't be that person, Paul says. Don't be foolish. Don't walk as the unwise do. 
See, a lot of times we want to think, oh, if you walk unwisely, it guarantees destruction, and it's going to, it does, but maybe not in the immediacy that we think or maybe even hope it might. Sometimes you get away with it and get away with it and get away with it. What worse condemnation than the person who flourishes and prospers in this world only to show up at the great white throne judgment and the Lord looks at him and says, depart from me for I never knew you. You realize God can even use the flourishing of this world according to its principles to bring about the condemnation of us. How great a fool are we if we think I'll follow the ways of this world to flourish. And Paul says, no, don't do that. Don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Walk in the will of God. You see, biblically, there are many ways to be a fool, but there's only one way to be wise. And that is by following the will of God. There are a lot of ways. Proverbs actually, the word fool in Proverbs actually is used to describe a lot of different things. It can mean everything from naivety to open rebellion against God. You hear it in Psalms. The fool says in his heart, what? There is no God. That's open rebellion and just says, I don't believe there's a God. But you also see in Proverbs, for example, that what, what he talks about is the fool who's naive. Like, and we do this, we're like, that is not a good idea. You, you ever given that advice before? Like, don't do that. Why? Trust me, it's not a good idea. A lot of that is the trust me part means because I tried it and it didn't work, right? Or it, it worked for a time and then it brought about destruction in my life. And so there, are, there is naivety to it. Uh, and there also is, in being foolish, they're also going to just open rebellion. So there's many ways to be a fool according to Scripture, but there's only one way to be wise, and that's following God. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, it's important when we talk about the will of God that we, we understand there's a differentiation here that we need to understand. And that is, it is God's will of decree, this is called the will of decree, or God's will of command. Okay? Now, let me describe this because what you see is when God wills things, there are different aspects to it. And these are the two major aspects. And if you read in a lot of different ways, it'll get labeled. For example, God's will of decree, sometimes it's God's, called God's sovereign will or even his secret will. In God's will of command, you'll also hear it called his moral will. That is, there, there are laws to be followed or his revealed will, things that he's asked us to do that we know we should do or not do. And that's important to understand when we talk about understand what the will of the Lord is. Let me give you a couple examples out of Scripture. One comes right out of Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1, 7 through 9, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Okay, you realize what Paul described in the first chapter of Ephesians is God's will of decree that he had, he had already decided and decreed, this will come about. This is how I bring together everybody, and it's under this one called Christ, the Messiah. But that wasn't obvious 
right? Because look in, in, what does he say? He had to make, or making known to us the mystery of his will, right? We get to know something that even the prophets in the past didn't know. It wasn't because it wasn't true in the past. It wasn't because it didn't exist. It's because it was hidden. So there is this, this, this God's will of decree that may be hidden from us, that's secret, not from God, but from us. We don't see that. But there's the other side, which we see throughout Scripture, which is, really comes through as primarily in the imperatives of Scripture, the commands, the do's and the don'ts, the do this this way or don't do it that way, or I want you to partake of this but not partake of that. That is what we call God's will of command. He's commanded us to do things. Right? Isn't it interesting that we are also to obey the gospel? You realize the gospel has obedience in it. We are to obey the gospel. If you look in Acts 2.23, you actually see both of these come together. God's will of decree and God's will of command. You see them together. In Acts 2.23, Peter talking, is, is talking to the Jews, particularly the Jewish leadership. And he says in Acts 2.23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You hear the definitiveness, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God's will of decree. I, God decided this will happen and what was going to happen? Jesus was going to die. He was going to be crucified. God didn't make this up as he went along. This was not plan B. God had, and he says it, had, had a definite plan and foreknowledge of it. God had decreed this to happen. And so you hear, you, hear, you, you, you see that aspect of God's will of decree. God will decide that things will happen and there's nothing you and I can do to stop it. Because God has said, this is how it will be. But then notice how he describes how it was brought about. He says there in, in 2.23, that you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Okay. God had this plan to deliver up, according to a definite plan of foreknowledge of God, to deliver Jesus up, to have him crucified. But what does he do? He says, you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. Why can he call them lawless? Because God has commanded laws, and he say they're the ones without it. And you, the Jews, because he's saying you Jews used the Romans to crucify Jesus. That's what you did. Like, you used the Romans as your instrument to murder the Son of God. That's what you did. And there you see the violation of God's will of command. Very clearly. Thou shall not murder. You used fallen Gentiles, the Romans, to kill the Messiah. That's what you did. And you see in this little picture both God's will of decree, this is going to come about, and his will of command all in the same time. And what we need to understand is going back, when we say we want to understand what the will of the Lord is, we are not trying to become diviners, divination, sorcerers, magicians to, fill up, to figure out God's secret will. This is a danger that we Christians can be tempted into. Probably the most popular form of this in modern Christianity is trying to figure out what all the end time signs are going to be. I can flip on the TV, and if you give me an hour, okay, I'll, I'll, make, it, I'll make it four. 
But if you just give me four hours, I bet you I'll find a program that somebody giving some sign about this is why it's the end times right now. And I'm going, how in the world do you know that? Our Lord literally said you will not know the time nor hour. We cannot enter in as Christians and put our hope in figuring out what God said you're not going to know about. Because you know what he has done? He has revealed overtly how we are to walk, his will of command. It is clear in Scripture. And we can look, and now what we need to develop wisdom on how to walk wisely according to what he has revealed. It, it is interesting to me, and I, I, I understand kind of the, the pull of it. It's, it's like we want to figure out, like, if I can figure out the secret formula, it'll all come together. And what Paul's trying to tell us is like, no, understand the will of God. It, what's really interesting about that word understand it's the same word that our Lord uses in the parables when he says, hear and understand, but in hearing, they don't understand. His point was, I told them overtly, but they don't understand it. And we can't be tempted to walk that way. You see, we know the will of God not through random feelings, not through random circumstances, or even through random scriptures that we go and cherry pick but through our knowledge of the whole counsel of God and the word of God. Be careful about this. Be very careful. How, how quickly we can be deceived to think, man, if I just figure out the, the little magic decoder piece, it'll bring everything together. And what Paul is saying is, no, understand the will of the Lord. Understand what he has revealed to us holistically in his whole counsel and follow after that. You know, I, I'll give you an illustration of this. I was kind of chuckling. This, we were coming back yesterday uh, down 35 um, from Dallas. And, and I've been talking to Dion. I'm like, man, I'd really like to get you a, a different car because this one's getting a little older and it might need maintenance. And so I've been, I've been, you know, I've been thinking about this. And I've been debating. And, and you might imagine I'm doing the finances and how much are we really going to spend. And, you know, you do all that. Because there's wisdom behind that, right? I mean, I thought about buying her the $100,000 car. Turns out I ain't got that kind of money. So wisdom tells me not to do that, right? But I'm driving down 35, and I look up, and I literally saw a sign. It said this, this is a sign that you need to buy a new car. Anyone want to guess where it was at? It was the car dealership on the left-hand side of the freeway I was coming down. <laughs> that was not a sign for me to buy a new car. That was a sign of good marketing. You know, that's what that was, Right? Now, because of the way I was raised, all that, it actually becomes the opposite for me. Like, right, then I'm not buying a new car because I'm too stubborn. That's how, I, you know, that's how I work. But the reality is we do that sometimes in our Christian lives. God, give me a sign. We act like Gideon. I'm going to throw out a fleece. You realize Gideon's fleece was not to know the will of God? He knew what God's will was. Gideon's fleece was to prove that he wouldn't follow it. That's what Gideon's fleece was for. He didn't need to know the will of God. He knew it. Be careful. Hear the whole counsel of God and follow that. It's in the word of God. We don't need to go figure out some secret decoder ring to figure out how to follow God's will. The third thing, and we'll finish here today, and we're going to build on this one much more next week. 
So if we're to walk in wisdom and we're to walk in, in the will of God, the third thing is we are to walk filled by the Spirit. In verse 18 it says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now we're going to spend a lot more time on this next week, because actually if you read down through 21, we're going to build out what does that mean. But I want you to see today what the basic idea here is. Notice it says, do not get drunk with wine. Now there's a whole history behind this idea of why drunkenness and what it does. But drunkenness, the idea behind it is control. Something else is given control through drunkenness. Now interesting, I'll just give you two things. One we know obviously, and the other one we may not know as well. One is, and we know this, we actually have a term for it, D-U-I or D-W-I. D-W-I is driving while intoxicated, but what does D-U-I stand for? Driving under the influence, the control. See, even in our modern world, we understand that drunkenness is about control or the lack thereof. We have handed control over to something else. In the ancient world, there was a practice in their pagan worship that the reason you would get drunk is you wanted, to, you wanted one of the gods to take over. Very specifically, the most common one was the god Bacchus, or the Greek word is Dionysus. It's the god of wine. And what you would do is you would get drunk so that the god of wine would take over and you could then do things that maybe you wouldn't do when that God wasn't in control. And those things were debauchery. They were utter sinfulness. You would do things you would not do when you were not controlled by the wine. And Paul says, don't be controlled by that, but be, and he actually, be what? Filled, in the ESV it says with, but the better preposition there is by. It's actually the word, you're going you're gonna to laugh, it's the word in E-N, transliterated, in Greek. When you see this phrase used, you don't find other places where it's common that it's used for content, i.e. be filled with the Spirit. It's actually being controlled by the Spirit. And we're going to talk about this more next week. What does that look like to be controlled by the Spirit? But that's what's at stake here. If you're going to walk carefully and diligently together in the body of Christ, if we're going to do that in our lives for Christ, we must be controlled by the Spirit, walk filled by the Spirit. That's the idea. He should control us and dictate how we walk. See, to be filled by the Spirit is to be controlled and guided by Him according to the wisdom and will of God expressed in the Word of God. Say that again. To be filled by the Spirit is to be controlled and guided by Him according to the wisdom and will of God expressed in the Word of God. Do you, do you see how that carries through the passage? Be wise. Know the will of God. Be controlled by the Spirit. And we're going to fill out next week what that looks like. So we finish this week to say this. We, let us walk carefully. How do we walk carefully? We walk in wisdom. Not as unwise, but as wise. We walk in the will of the Lord, not foolishly, but understanding what the will of the Lord is, very specifically through the revealed word of God. 
And thirdly, we walk filled by the Holy Spirit, not drunk, but filled with the Spirit, controlled by Him. So why let us walk carefully? So that we redeem the time to advance the gospel for the glory of God. We do this to redeem the time for God's glory. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for Paul and, and Father, helping us to understand, to lay out clearly what it means for us to walk diligently, carefully, intentionally, to redeem the time so that we would advance the gospel, the kingdom of God, for your glory. God, help us so that we would walk wisely, that we would walk according to your will, and that we walk controlled by the Spirit. Father, we pray that you would use us for your great glory, for we know this is for our great good. It's in Jesus' name we pray and by the Holy Spirit. Amen.